You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for what we've heard by way of scripture and by song. We thank you that in the power of Christ this morning we stand. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus and what he's done for us that one died in our place. And Lord, I pray now that as your word is preached, that you would open our hearts and our minds. Lord, I pray that your truth would be clear. I pray for power and authority. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would work in our midst. There are needs in this room that are um, exposed, that are hidden, there are broken hearts. There are so many things that one person could never um, address. But Lord, we thank you that you're the all-knowing God, and I pray that by your Spirit you'd work in the hearts and lives of your people. We ask all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. We began 2 Kings chapter 2 last week, and verses 1 through 14, the truth that we talked about was that God's power still reaches us. There was a seismic shift happening in Israel. The old lion was about to die. Elijah was a figure bigger than life. Um, As Elisha sees him going, he calls him the defense of Israel. When Elijah was on the scene, there was comfort, there was peace, there was a sense that everything would be okay. And now he was leaving, and, and it was unsettling, to say the least. People were concerned on what happens next and where do we go from here. And so he crosses Jordan with Elijah. God takes him. Elijah comes back and he asks this question, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And the answer that he gets by way of parting the Jordan is exactly what that remnant community needed to hear in their time of anxiety and uncertainty. And the answer was clear. The answer was this. The God of Elijah is still here with his struggling and suffering saints. He doesn't change. And that power is still available for not just them, that remnant, but our remnant of believers as well. And in life, there will be seismic shifts. Some will be small tremors, little things that just disrupt us. Others will be major and catastrophic. And in those times, we're reminded that God's power still reaches us because there is one who remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that one is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in our lives, we must remember that this one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever never changes in his character. He is always the same. He never changes in his control. He is always sovereign king. He never changes in his compassion. As he wept when he walked among us, he weeps for us today. He knows, he's concerned, he feels, he's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And thank God that his cross is the same today, yesterday, and forever. It is still efficacious. It still accomplishes what he has designed. It still has the power to save unto the ends of the earth. And we thank God for that. And so this morning, before we even get into the rest of our text, just a reminder of last week that God's power is still available for you and I this morning. And when our lives shift, we ought not be running to things. 
and stuff or organizations or any other person. We should run into the arms of Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is our rock. He is our refuge. He is the only hope we have. And we will fail miserably to find the comfort and the peace and the security and the ease looking anywhere else other than Christ. And so, from first, Second Kings chapter 2, we find that God's power still reaches us. Our second point this morning, that we'll delve into in just a moment, um, is a little different than that. We had our growth groups this summer. I thoroughly enjoyed our growth groups. And after one evening, we were meeting, and Roger said to me, Pastor, are there any texts in the Bible or any stories in the Bible that you would rather not preach on, that you would like to ignore and just sort of pass over? I said, yes, there is. a matter of fact, here is one for you. And the text that I told him was 2 Kings chapter 2, exactly where we find ourselves this morning. And there would be a temptation to pass over this text. But we will not do that this morning. We will stay in the text. So, this morning, whether you're a skeptic today or a saint, this text is problematic. And if you read the text and, and off the bat you say, ah, no problem, I, I get it, it's good, I'm happy with it. I don't know that you actually read the text. Or at least thought about what's been said. And so... My plan this morning is to reverse the order and deal with the most difficult parts of this passage first. When I was in Bridgeport uh, for about 10 years, my mentor there had an acronym that he used. And the acronym was DUTY, but he spelled it D-U-T-I. And it meant do unpleasant tasks immediately. Right? And, and, and I, it's been good advice because when there are tasks in my life that I don't want to do, a phone call that has to be made, a meeting uh, to meet with an individual, um, the honey to-do list that I can't stand doing that thing, right? do unpleasant tasks immediately. You do them, you get them done, it's done. So this morning, we're going to do unpleasant tasks immediately. We're going to look at verses 23 to 25 this morning. And let me say... Whether you're a skeptic this morning or a saint, before you check out and say, yeah, 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 this is exactly the problem I have with the Bible. There are stories like this, you know, fill in the blank. Or you're a saint this morning and you read this passage and you just fly over and just say, yeah, I don't know, it's okay. We do that sometimes. I'm encouraging you this morning to listen, to really listen. And before you cast judgment on the text and the God of the text, listen to what's being said in the text in the context that we find it this morning. We said last week that God's power still reaches us. This week, the point is this, from verses 23 to 25, God's judgment still frightens us. On a casual reading of this text, you, know, you just read the text. The natural response is this. What in the world is up with Elijah? I mean, give me a break. Here's an old man walking down the road. A couple of kids make fun of his bald head, and he just freaks out. 
He goes from zero to, like, psycho in three seconds. I mean, give me a break, Elijah. Uh, You're a little over the top here. Come on, man, lighten up just a bit. I mean, to curse these children in the name of the Lord and have bears come out of the woods? I mean, this sounds preposterous. It's like, what are you doing? You're just a cranky old man with an axe to grind. And I have to be honest, if you just read it like that, it's, it's really problematic. But there's more happening in this text than I think we can even understand. And so... This morning, I want to just point out five phrases that are actually in the text that may help us this morning. Look, if you would, at verse number 23, chapter 2. And he went up from thence unto Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children. Little children. And that's the first phrase that really troubles us. When I say little children, what age group naturally comes to your mind? Little children. Four, five, exactly. I would say the same thing. I would say toddlers, junior church, little children. The problem is that that word that's used for little children in the King James, right, means any age from infancy to adolescence. So you could say little children and mean babies. You could say little children and mean a 12-year-old. Okay? So just to help us with this, and I believe the text bears this out for us, that when he says little children... Well, in some of your Bibles this morning, it would say maybe youth or young lads. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking somewhere between the ages of 10 and 12. And we've got to be careful when we read the Bible because so many times we, we sort of put ourselves in a situation that, well, they're just kids. And so we think of this whole group of, you know, teenager. Can I tell you something? The idea of teenager today from 13 to 18 is a category that's relatively new. You know, throughout most of history, you went from, there were only two categories, a child and an adult. And you went from childhood to adulthood. There wasn't this expanding of childhood like we've done today, where we've expanded adolescence to mean that at 29 years old, I can still be a boy. Right? That somehow it's okay for me to extend my childhood as a man and still play Xbox at 29 years old and do nothing profitable because I'm just living out my childhood. That's not the way it's been for most of the world. A matter of fact, if you're here this morning and you grew up old school, right, by 10, 11, or 12 years old, if you were on a farm, you know what you were doing? You weren't playing Xbox. You were playing a game with udders or shoveling, or doing something, right? You were working. If your father had a trade, you were working. And so one thing that we have to do is we just can't read the text and think, oh, my goodness, here are, here's junior church. Not junior church, here's toddlers. Here's four- and five-year-olds. And then the text will prove to us this morning he's talking about youth, right? Probably around 12 years old. Okay? That's the first thing. The second thing is this. It says in our text that they came out of the city. They came, this group came out of the city. Now again, I think when I read this, 
as I've read it in the past, I've envisioned this old, cranky prophet going through the streets of Bethel, and he's going past a candy shop where there are four- and five-year-olds there, and some smart kid says, ah, look at the bald guy, and he freaks out, and these bears come out and kill all these little children, right? But that's not what the text says. The text says that this group of youths came out of the city. Elijah didn't go into Bethel. He was outside of Bethel, And as he's outside, what happens is this group of young people calculates, and they meet him. Number three, the city itself is Bethel. In the Bible, when it gives us a name or location, right, it means something. Bethel means something. Bethel, right, was the first city or the first place when Israel divided as a nation, the northern tribe, the southern tribe, that Jeroboam in Bethel began false worship. It was the worship of the bull. It had been happening now for at least 80 years. And in this city, parents, grandparents maybe, kids, would have been hostile to the true worship of God. They would have been hostile to anyone who would dare claim to them that their worship was wrong, that their God, the bull, was wrong, and that Yahweh was the only true God. It was Bethel. Number three, the term mocked. They say, go up. Go up, you bald head. And some people think that when they say go up, they're they're referring back to Elijah, who was caught away in the whirlwind. And they're saying, hey, just like he went up, Get out of here? Maybe. I think it's even more simple than that. They go out of the city and say, listen, get out of here. Go up. Don't don't stay here. Make like a tree and scram. I know that's not right, but that's how I say it. Make like a tree and scram or leave or whatever. We don't want you here. Leave. And the idea of baldy, right? If you're bald this morning, this is very offensive, right? You should know, though, if you're bald in the back, you're a lover, If you're bald in the front, you're a thinker. And if you're bald in the front and back, you just think you're a lover. So that's how that... I'm not sure if that works like that. They called, hey, go up, bald head. Now now think about this, though. He's in a climate, when you're traveling, your head is not uncovered. You wear a a turban, you wear something to cover your head. They They knew who he was. They knew what he looked like. This was not just, okay, baldy. This was a term of contempt and disdain, right? So the picture is changing just a bit if you're listening. And the last phrase that I think is troubling that we need to think about is this. It says, 42 of them. Of them. So now think with me. It wasn't all of them, okay? 42 of them were killed meaning there were more than 42 there. We're not talking about a small gathering. We're talking about a mob. You say, oh, come on, man. You, you, so what? Maybe there were 60. Maybe there were 70. No big deal. Yeah? Then why don't you sign up next week and go into toddler class for an hour with those kids who are about 15 and see how you fare in there. They're terrible. Just terrible. Right? We're talking now of a mob of kids, maybe 12 years old, who knows, there were more than 42. This was a mob. And so, before we just move on, understand that these youths, 
were expressing contempt and hostility towards God's representative, and they knew exactly what they were doing. Exactly. It wasn't like, oh man, I should have said that. They went out of the city, they found him, and they said, get out of here. I don't care who you are, you don't belong here to God's representative. Look at Elijah's response. The Bible says, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Now, this is why it's really important to read your entire Bible. This is why we don't just read the New Testament and the red letters of the Bible, because you need the whole picture. Elijah curses him in the name of the Lord. This is a covenant curse. You cannot forget, Israel was a chosen people. God made a covenant with them like no other nation in the world. And he said, listen, I will be your God. You will be my people. Here are my laws. And they all say, we will do what you say. We will follow you. We promise we'll do this. And they didn't. And God said, okay, we'll make a covenant. And as long as you obey, you will be blessed. And when you don't obey because of what you have seen and what you've experienced, like no other nation, you will be cursed. Now listen, this is Leviticus chapter 26, verse 21. This is what God says hundreds of years before this to the children of Israel. Verse number 21. And if you walk contrary unto me, because you've made a covenant with me, and will not hearken unto me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. Verse 22. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children and destroy your cattle and make you few in number and your highways shall be desolate. When Elijah curses them, it wasn't because he's having a bad day. This was a covenant curse. And by the way, just that you know, it wouldn't have mattered what he said if God was like, what are you doing, Elijah? That request would have never been answered. You remember the story about James and John? The Samaritans didn't want Jesus there, and James and John say, Lord, you want us to call fire down on these guys? Because we'll do it. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? First, you can't do it. And number two, right, your spirit is wrong. And so this is not just a cranky old prophet. God responds, and he responds with judgment. The reason this event happened is because God was judging these individuals. Now, let's be honest this morning. We talk about the fear of the Lord. And in the world we live in, this idea is mocked. It's mocked. When the world perceives the God that they want to perceive, he is always a nice chap. right? Maybe he's an old man in a rocking chair that's sort of senile and doesn't really care what's happening in your life. As long as everyone's having a good time, as long as your wildest dreams are coming true, this is the God that we have perceived in our mind. The world has anyways. And so as they think of this God, no negative vibes. Don't tell me anything about wrath, about judgment, about sin, and certainly don't talk about hell. Right? Um, No scary theology, the world says. Don't want to hear that. That's a scare tactic. And if you think I'm stretching this, I encourage you tomorrow around the water cooler to bring up hell and see what everyone says. See how well that goes in the world we live. The world mocks this idea, but you must know the church has minimized this idea. The church doesn't want to talk about the text. 
and I, I hear people, I hear people in church always say, well, we're just non-judgmental. Brother, sister, if you by non-judgmental mean that we're all sinners in need of a Savior, we accept everybody, no matter who they are, where they come from, their story, you're loved and welcome here, I'm with you. Amen. But if by non-judgmental you mean that we never talk about sin and death and hell and wrath, I am not with you. It's not the word of God. And whether it's in the world or in the church today, there's this idea that God is love and that's all he is. Right? We don't, don't talk. God is love. The problem with that is Jesus didn't get the memo. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body or soul and body in hell. That sounds judgmental to me. And it comes from the lips of the most loving man that ever walked the planet, Jesus Christ. Listen to this in Revelation 20.11. This is John, the disciple of love. And this is a vision he sees. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And... Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I'm not being irreverent. That verse should scare the hell out of you. And I'm serious. That's what John says is coming for every man and woman who rejects the God of the universe. Hebrews tells us it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we live in a world today, and, and this is one of our problems. Because now we never stand face-to-face with anyone, right? We tweet, we troll, we post, we're angry, we're upset, and we talk to people that we will never see face-to-face. And so we're emboldened then to be like, yeah, I'll tell you my mind. And you talk to someone you will never see. That's not how it was done years ago. I worked with my father-in-law for a long time. I had to work for seven years to marry my wife. (laughs) He, He said it was biblical. I don't know. So seven years. And, and while I was working, um, his painting business was unbelievable. It, it was reputable. I mean, there was no advertising after time because he did a great job. Word of mouth kept busy forever. He still has clients today at 70 who will call him and want him to paint in their home. But I recall several times, either hearing or viewing, when people would call, they'd be bent out of shape about something, screaming on the phone, screaming. And, and my father-in-law would say, Hold on, I'm coming right there. And they say, oh, oh, you know, you don't have to come. It's okay. No, no, I'm coming. Click. You know, when he showed up, the whole attitude changed. No one's screaming. No one's yelling. No, we're actually talking face to face. It's different, right? You know what I'm talking about. It's not sitting behind a computer screen. You're an idiot, blah, 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 blah. No, no, no. You see me face to face, Right? I don't need to scream. I don't need to yell this morning. Listen to me. 
There is coming a day when every man and woman will stand face to face with the God of heaven. Who this face, the heaven and earth, flee from. The Bible says every mouth will be stopped. This morning, as uncomfortable as these verses may be, God's curse will find those who despise him. And by the way, I've been at this for a long time. Can I tell you something about sin that we toy with? I've been doing this for almost 30 years now. Sin always destroys everything it touches. Everything. It destroys lives, marriages, children, happiness, joy, peace, everything. And a God of love who loves his creation will not allow sin to continually destroy everything. He will deal with it. And the church must recover the idea that this God is a judge. His judgment ought to still frighten us. Now listen to me. If you're here this morning and you say, well, I'm saved, right? And I, and I pray that's the case. I pray that you know Christ and you're saved. You know what I'm talking about. But let me ask you a question. What are you saved from? Because salvation with love, that God loves you, means nothing, nothing, unless you're saved from something. And I think we've forgotten that God's justice, God's holiness, God's wrath, God's anger, God's punishment of hell is truly the black drop and backdrop, this black velvet, that the diamond and the beauty of the gospel of Christ shines brightest. Because I know for a fact I was a, a sinner in need of a savior. I was condemned. I was on in my rebellion. I was running to hell and destruction. And by God's grace, knowing that, I have been saved. I've been born again. I've been delivered from that wrath. And the church must recover this because it's what gives glory and beauty to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This idea of God's judgment creates in us a holiness for him. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. We're called to be holy, and it helps us point others to him. Believer, for many of us, we'll glory this morning that we've been rescued. We're sort of all on this great island of, man, we're so happy, we're joyous, we're rescued. And all around us, people are drowning and dying who don't know the hope that we have. And without Christ, there is no hope. And so, the church must once again come back to the idea that God's judgment still frightens us. It will cause a holiness within his people. and it will cause us to long to help others to know him. So when you read this story, it's there for a reason. And the story is to shock you. It's it's to say, listen, don't toy with this God. He is not something to be toyed with. And all of your excuses on why you won't live for him and why you'll rebel and why you deserve will not stand. They won't. And today you are once again being warned and begged to turn and repent. There is no hope outside of Christ. And think with me. If you were good, and if there was something you could do, 
Why in the world would Jesus Christ die a horrific, excruciating death on the cross to be forsaken by the Father if there was any other way? Why? Because there is no other way. Christ bore the wrath of your sin so that you don't have to. And that's why he is a beautiful Savior today. So the judgment of God should still frighten us. Number two, and this is my last point. I won't make a third point this morning. And this falls in line with exactly what we're saying. You might not see it at first, but it does. God's judgment still frightens us. Number three of our points, actually number two this morning, God's grace still thrills us. The prophet goes to Jericho. God's people are there. And um, they get there, and the, the, the people of God say, listen, this is a great city. The problem is the water's bad, Right? Um, we were talking with a lawyer about the home we purchased, and he said there are real two sticky areas in buying property, especially out in the country. One is a shared driveway. You want to talk about fights and problems? A shared driveway is a problem, right? Some of you know that. Neighbors parking wherever they want to. I can't get out. You're in my driveway. No, it's my driveway. Number two, water. Wells. If you don't have one, You can't live. It's a problem. Here is Jericho, and they say, hey, this is a great city. The problem is the water is bad. The the word there um, literally means it miscarries. Livestock and people are dying because of this problem. Now, I said earlier, the word Bethel, the place, is important. Jericho is important this morning. There's a reason it's mentioned. What do you know about Jericho this morning? Anything? Does it ring a bell? The city of Jericho? Walls. Yeah, walls came tumbling down. Remember the story? Marched around seven times. Do you know what happened after the walls came down? Joshua said something about this city. Do you remember? He cursed it. He said, this city is cursed. And anyone who wants to rebuild it, let them rebuild it with their firstborn being buried and their youngest being buried. He curses the city. It's a cursed city. Then in 1 Kings, we were reading 1 Kings, I think it's chapter 19 or maybe 20, that some guy under Ahab's reign says, I don't care what the word of God says, I'm going to build Jericho. And so he does. After he builds it, he has two monuments. They're beautiful. They're headstones of his oldest son and his youngest son. This city is cursed. It's cursed. God's people are there, and this city is a cursed City and so Elijah says, "Hey, bring a bowl and bring some salt, and don't get just don't get weird on this. Like, well, I wonder if the salt means that we're the salt of the world. Don't, don't, don't read into that. It's salt. It's a bowl. It's just an outward expression that something miraculous is happening. The miraculous is that God says, I will heal these waters, and He does. He does. God's word through God's prophet brings grace to God's people. So, in light of what we just read about." Fearing God, it should frighten us. Here we see that God's grace should thrill us. Why? Because this God that we serve, listen to me, would much rather heal than destroy. Always. Listen to Ezekiel, chapter 33, verse 11. Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? This God, 
delights in relenting. He delights in it. He delights to turn curse-ridden, sin-laden, judgment-bearing situations into episodes of grace. This is the God that we serve. He delights in this, to take situations where it's cursed, it's sin-ridden, it's terrible, but I want to take this thing and turn it into an episode of grace, and the truth is, it sounds too good to be true. But it's not. This is our God. He can take a place like Jericho, which is Curseville, and turn it into Graceville. And he does it all the time. I'm talking this morning to individuals, maybe you're a man here this morning, with a past. And you have long ago repented of that past. You, you said, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. It was terrible. It was, it was a lack of judgment and discretion. And yet still today, you don't believe you could ever enjoy the smile of God on your life again. And you battle with that all the time. Curse. Maybe you're a woman this morning, and out of confusion or pressure or ignorance, you aborted a child. Innocent life is gone. And your idea is that somehow now, although I've confessed, God must hate me for what I've done. Maybe this morning there's been unfaithfulness in your marriage and you confessed it and you forsook it and it's like I'm, we're putting this thing back together. But you really believe that God only tolerates you now because of what you've done. Maybe you're a teen here this morning and you have rebelled and broken the hearts of your parents and your church and you've come back as a prodigal and yet you, your head is still bowed and you think you're a second-class citizen. And maybe this morning you're like every one of us who have shameful regrets, decisions that were made, and we keep burying ourselves in guilt over and over and over again, thinking, I'm cursed. I blew it. Cursed, ridden, sin laden. And maybe as a pastor, it'd be a good idea this morning to come down and maybe grab you by the scruff of your neck. I won't do it, but I feel like I should. And pull your carcass to Jericho. And say, look at the city, the cursed city. This city that was cursed over and over again. Curseville. Look what God has done. He changed this place into Graceville. And to take you by your neck and say, look at, behold your God. That's his grace. And it should still thrill us. That no matter what I've done in the past, my, my rejection, my guilt, all of it, when I confess it, he comes along and says, listen to me, I paid the price. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is your God. Isaiah 30 says, he binds up the bruise, he heals the stroke of their wound. He delights to take those episodes and turn them into monuments of grace. And we of all people should glory in it this morning. One of my favorite passages is Psalm chapter 103. Let me read it for you this morning. Verse 9. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Verse 17. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children. My friend this morning, I don't care what your past is. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how much guilt has weighed upon you. It is not spiritual to continue to beat yourself up and talk about the curse-filled place you live when by God's grace he has delivered you. Well, I can, I'm the exception. I'm, you don't understand. I don't need to understand. His blood is sufficient, and his blood is able, and when he says you're cleansed, he means you are cleansed. We said this morning in Sunday school, 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so this morning, I encourage you, my friend, To keep this tension, the judgment of God should frighten us, saved and lost. And the grace of God should thrill us. It should thrill us. And this tension brings holiness and wholesomeness to our lives. Let's have a word of prayer this morning. I don't know where you find yourself today. This is a hard text. It's a, it's a terrible story, and it's meant to be a terrible story. It's meant to be a warning. And then the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, is the God of the future. He is not just the God of history. He is the God who is contemporary this morning. This morning, if you don't know Christ, I'm, just, I'm begging you, quit counting on your church, your religion, your good works, because you're coming here. That does nothing for you. You must repent and believe. You can do it now in your seat. Say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I believe you're the way, the truth, and the life. My way isn't right. It isn't working. It's wrong. I have sinned against you. Please save me. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. I give my life to you. You could do that today. And then tell somebody, listen, I did that. For the believer this morning, it's funny how we deal with guilt, isn't it? We think it's somehow therapeutic to keep on bringing it up and punishing ourselves over and over again. My friend, you don't understand the grace of God. It should thrill you this morning that whatever that was in the past, it's covered. And glory and rejoice in it this morning. Father, whatever the need is in the midst of your people, Spirit of God, work. Do a lasting and abiding work. Help us to see the God who is, not the God who we've made you to be, but the God who is, that we should be fearful of your judgment and we should be thrilled in your grace. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.